Our national conversation about conversations about race is sponsored by MailChimp. Guess how many businesses around the world use MailChimp? Seven million. To do what? Send email newsletters. Find out more at MailChimp.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Before we begin this week's show, I just wanted to take a moment out to send our deep felt condolences to the community in Charleston, to the AME Church, and to the families of the nine victims. And we are not going to get into it this time around, but we want some time to pass and we want to reflect and have some hindsight and really get into it um, and give it the attention that it deserves in the near future. Hello and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the bi-weekly multiracial podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, but rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre-post, yet still very racial America. You could say all that, or you could just call the show about race. I'm Raquel Cepeda, and joining me here in the Panoply Studios in New York City are my co-hosts, Tanner Colby. What up, Tanner? Hello. Did you miss me? I missed you All so right. much, Raquel. <laughs> and what's up, Baratunde? Hey, hey, hey. How do I look now that you can see me in HD? You are so crystal clear Yay. beautiful. Oh. Yes. You're better so. without glasses. <laughs> <laughs> On this week's show, Rachel Dolezal, the problem with white allies, and as we've just seen in Charleston, South Carolina, the very real violence faced by those people who aren't just pretending to be black. We'll wrap things up with, yo, check this out, our tips and recommendations. But first, what's up with you, Baratunde? I have been traveling uh, a bit since our last episode. Just came in from Cleveland to the studio today and uh, was somewhere else that I just forgot. But let's say I've been (laughs) traveling a bit. My eyes are getting sharper each time. And uh, yeah, very excited about what my company, Cultivated Wit, is up to. We have a comedy hackathon coming up in August. We get these software developers and comedians to build fun things together. And uh, a recent winner made a calendar app that lets you pretend to be busy. So it oh, auto-fills your calendar cool. with real events. So when your friends ask you, yo, can you help me move? You're like, sorry, I got this thing. So it's at uh, gotthisthing.com. People can check that out. And it actually really works. And it's all over uh, the that's nation, maybe so even cool. the world at this so, point. So. so then the stuff just comes in that's really happening around yeah, the they, city, they around synchro- your particular that's city. That's right. They, they check your location with your permission. It synchronizes with Eventbrite and other uh, calendar services online. And then they make up a few. So there's like there's like cello recitals. They'll just throw in there uh, mentoring sessions that you're not <laughs> going to be doing, but you just look like a good person. To <laughs> <laughs> that is so yeah, it's, it's, cool. We're very proud of the team. Um, and they have continued to go farther with the app. So what what's the website where we can download Comedy, this? Comedyhackday.org. Okay. It links you to everything that's been made. And this we'll particular app is gotthisthing.com. And then, we'll, of course, we'll list that on our episode notes. Yes. What's up with you, Mr. Tanner? I saw the best movie last night. <laughs> A new documentary directed by Sasha Jenkins called Fresh Dressed. Sasha Jenkins, for those of you who don't know, is Raquel Cepeda's husband. And I'm going to big up this film so that Raquel nice. doesn't have to do it and, and appear to be nepotistic. Um, <laughs> but it's a documentary about the history of hip-hop fashion and its relationship to everything with, you know, the political parts of hip-hop and the movement and, you know, and 
just everything. And it's a really great documentary. And it'll be out on iTunes. It'll be out on iTunes and theaters. And theaters. Um, next Friday, the 26th. Next Friday. Yes. So I I actually got to leave my house in the evening and I sit know. in a movie theater, which I've done twice in two years. So <laughs> with the new kid at home. Wow. So it's a great night, great documentary. So that was a lot of fun. So um, I just came back from the Havasupai Reservation. So basically to get there, I had to take... Our car, obviously, to the airport, to a train, to a plane, then a jeep, two hours from Phoenix to um, Sedona, and then the next morning to Seligman, Route 66, the Hualapai Reservation, to a heliport, take a helicopter, and go all the way down to the bottom of the res. Nice. With my kids. And what? We, and this when you got there, trip? what happened? It was a family trip. When, actually, when we got there, it was very illuminating. I can't say too much because we're gonna, I'm going to have to write about it. I don't know what I'm going to write about. It, so I can't give it. I can't spill the beans. But as we were leaving, we went all the way there just to be, just to have some old white guy want to touch my hair and my daughter's hair. And he was just like, oh, my God, you're so beautiful. You guys are so, like, exotic. <laughs> and he was, and actually, I could have, the old Raquel would have been annoyed, yeah. but I just understood him trying to, like, get the conversation yeah. started. We're waiting for the helicopter to take us back up, to go back home. And he just, you know, was trying to be cool. He didn't, I don't know if he knew any other way to do it. He was well-intended, but it was really annoying to have somebody, like, reach over to touch my daughter's hair without asking me. Or asking her. Yeah. Well, congratulations yes. on your new perspective. Yes. On curiosity. I feel like I grow. I feel like the only way you know that you've grown is by be, being put in very difficult situations. No, that's true. That's yeah. So true. Um, I was kind tested. of, yeah, yeah, I was tested. This is the moment that we've been waiting for, guys. Or at least <laughs> that many of our readers have been waiting for. I suspect is the moment we are already Ooh. tired of. Yes. Rachel Doljol. Look at this. She mm-hmm. even hijacked Juneteenth. Dol- <laughs> We're recording this on Juneteenth, the day of emancipation, but we are bound by a media frenzy of a woman pretending to be black in order to fight for black people. We're familiar with the timeline, I think, at this point. Many of us have seen her interviews. By the time this comes out, more tidbits and saucy, juicy nuggets will have been released. So rather than retell the whole thing, I submit to my co-hosts, <laughs> I am curious about a few things. What of interest in this story have you maintained uh, over the past week or so, if any? And what value do you think can come of this, if any? We don't need to get into the salaciousness so much anymore. I want to know, like, does it matter? I think that what I retained has nothing to do with Rachel Dolezal, but Matt Lauer. I was incensed. And, I, and then I tuned out right after he said this, when he told her, well, you brought, you know, the, the and I'll say it in my own words, the national conversation about race to a, you know, to a national level. He's giving this woman props for doing that when black children are dying all over the place. Yeah. And we've had, we live in America. You could find the conversations about race have never let, gone away. You know what I mean? So Plus, why he didn't she... rep our podcast when he talked about it. Yeah, so exactly. It's clear, like, we branded I think it. there's a lawsuit in there somewhere. <laughs> Can we get some trademark lawyers? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I just feel like it's just like it just shows just how out of touch the people that are reporting and that we look up to to give us the news are with what's really going on. Okay. In, 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 in the world around them. So you give negative marks to Matt Lauer for elevating her to race conversationalists or, or spur of conversation. Anything stick with you, Tanner? What, what's, well, what initially, I, it was like, you know, I, I couldn't look away. Just that rubbernecking <laughs> fascination. Uh, and every new, new tidbit, like the glamour shots of her with her dreadlocks, you know, <laughs> that she got made. And it's like, but the more and more it came out, 
it's obvious that we don't know what to believe about what she says or anyone in her family says because obviously it's a little not right, whatever's going on with that family. You know, her parents in the initial interview, they were like, you know, our daughter's been living a lie and we're just very concerned about her. Uh, and they tried to present it that they were these parents who were like having an intervention on their, their troubled daughter. Then they gave, like, okay, you do one interview, that's fine. But they've given like 12 or something and it's like they're they're a little bit gleeful to like shame their daughter publicly so it's obvious there have been claims of abuse some of her brothers say this some of her brothers say that she says one thing but obviously her childhood was very messed up and it's not really that surprising you see it all the time like i grew up in this bible belt town in in alabama and the kids from the most messed up homes with the alcoholic parents who were like drinking and smoking by you know eighth grade by senior year they were the most fervent born-again christians you can imagine it's like they've run away from this messed up childhood and they've embraced a new identity and completely remade themselves. It's like it's like replacing one addiction with another. Right. Yeah. And so it's it's not at all surprising that someone from a messed up background would remake herself in a new identity. Now, the fact that it's race and not religion adds a new layer to it. But I, after being utterly fascinated by her, I find her actually somewhat banal. So I, what I find most interesting is people's reaction to it rather than her, uh, what she did, it, you know, her own. And it, just yeah. the way she's like obfuscating everything, you know, when you talk to her and you ask her questions, it's like you're talking to like a wall. Well, and to I, me, it sounds like she has uh, obviously mental issues. And I just find it kind of annoying as somebody who came from a very broken home and was severely abused as a child myself to see her using that as being like, oh, I'm just going to become something completely different. And I've also gone to school with a lot of, especially in, in college, mm -hmm. with a lot of white women that were trying to become black or Latino um, in school. Yeah. Once they've taken yeah. the black history course and if you know, they've once they found out about our history, yeah. all of a sudden they're like, you know, they're coming like Rachel Dolezal. She's an extreme down. example. I don't yeah, want to go no, that far. And, and, she, right. and she represents a category which is like a great talking point for a week and then and then not anymore, but she kind of colonized the struggle, like very ironically. She became an academic of all things, yet distributes little to no thought about her actions. You know, she's so semi-eloquent on issues of police brutality on behalf of the NAACP, but she can't even see herself and no. see the foulness of what she's done. She can't see the blackface performance art that she uh, should be given a Lifetime Achievement Award for in some weird way. The moment that I got out of this of most joy was someone photoshopped her reading a copy of my book, How to Be Black. How to Be Black. I bought into and it. I thought she was reading. I actually, when I first saw it, I, I thought it was real too because it felt plausible. And she was holding, the, the image showed her holding the advanced reader's copy, like not a copy that's out in the wild very much. Mm -hmm. I'm like, how did somebody even get an image of that? But it turns out I was the one reading it. That's like, hysterical. Right. Early reading. So somebody clipped it from that, but they integrated it. Very well. Um, and we'll put it in uh, our well, show notes for people to see. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's Instagram, Baratunde. Day. It's, yeah, it's like, so that's, funny. It's the jam. It's the if greatest you, image. If you watched, because I watched all 30 minutes of the Melissa Harris Perry interview, and it you was like. You are stronger than yeah, me. Yeah, you're stronger was, than me. It was a 30 minute word salad of critical race theory vocabulary, because yeah. she would, anytime she was asked a direct question, she would sort of throw off a lot of words about identity being fluid and variable and complex, and then she would talk about. Because she would just change the subject and shift somewhere else. And Melissa Harris Perry, whom I like, I respect, she got my son a wonderful present the day he was born. Mm -hmm. She just sat there and entertained this 
delusional person. Yeah. And it was like what exactly what it was like. It was like watching Neil deGrasse Tyson interview a seven day creationist oh. and accept mm. their premise of the origin of the universe is like okay yeah and i just couldn't fathom actually the matt lauer interview was terrible because matt lauer doesn't know what he's talking about but the melissa, melissa harris perry right. interview yes. was terrible it was because great. she does know what she's talking about and yet she had this weird moment and a lot of people talked about online like where she entertained this woman as like symbolizing something the best interview actually was savannah guthrie on the nbc oh, Nightly yes, news that I because okay. she actually just called bs <laughs> yes she actually just called bullshit uh, on this yes, woman she did. yeah and like she said you know are you black? Have you lied about being black? And she said, well, race is fluid, da 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 And she just literally said, look, when someone asks you if you're black or white, you know what they're asking you. Have you lied? Yes. And she, Savannah Guthrie is the only person that's yeah. like... Sorry, I'm cutting you off. No, no, go ahead. But to counter you a little bit and give Matt Lauer props, he's the one who called it... Dece- he's like, when did you start lying to people? Mm-hmm. He asked her that so directly, and she was like, well, I would take issue with that. But he's like, when did you start deceiving people? You let these terms fly at you know people calling you black people calling you biracial and and i'll pause on this last one people calling you transracial and and so her semi embrace of that term her refusal to refuse that term is a way of saying yes and she had co-opted a term which already has a meaning Actually, no, that's an abstract that, racist. That's one thing that came on the Melissa Harris Perry and Ruth. Other people said that about her. She didn't say that. She said, I am black. I identify as black. Yeah. But, Transracial was put on her by other people. No, that, that, yeah, and that's what I just said. She refused to deny it. Like, no, yeah. she did on Melissa Harris Perry. Oh, Melissa, she denied so, that word. If you had sat so through the, the whole painful so interview, you would know that. So the week that she got called yeah, out, that. <laughs> she denied it. But right. the life that she built, she embraced it. Like That was part of right. her transition into blackness was to let these newspapers in the Midwest who didn't probably know what a black person even looked like uh, or came from or didn't know how right. to challenge her because it's awkward to challenge someone's identity. Right. Right. First, the way she described it to Matt Lauer was it started with transracial, then it shifted to biracial, then it was a black woman was mm-hmm. you know, targeted by a hate crime. Yeah. But, but it, to the term transracial, I just think it's important uh, for this show to have an opportunity to tell yes. people that that means a thing. Well, guess <laughs> what? Guess what? Last night, I don't wear makeup, so I don't know how to apply it. So I ran into Mac and I met a transracial adoptee. All right. So you do explain what transracial is. It's a person who's adopted by parents of a different race. Right. In her case, she's Afro-Boricua and she was adopted by white parents. So that's, you know. And in that relationship, is she a transracial adoptee and they are transracial parents? Like what is the term for the parents? No, the parents are white. They're white parents. (laughs) (laughs) They are (laughs) they're white parents. And then she's transracial and she said she had a very loving relationship with them and that they've always they've always encouraged her to identify the way she wanted to. Yeah. And they even hired a private investigator to find her mother. And she's, you know, really interesting. But what I gather is that there's like a it's a community. It's a community. Yeah. yeah, it's a community of people. And it's kind of like hurtful. She didn't want to get too heavily, you know, into Rachel Dolezal. She didn't seem to give a crap about Rachel Dolezal so much. But from what I'm gathering, what I'm reading on our posts and stuff, kind of hurtful. Yeah. Well, I think no, we're, yeah. we're definitely getting a lot of emails from transracial people who are worried that this is going to become right. an appropriation. I don't think you need to because I don't think Rachel Dolezal is the tip of a spear of a coming trend. You know, she's trans Dolezal. She's not <laughs> transracial. She's, she's a, not. We don't need a word to racist. describe Rachel Dolezal because Rachel Dolezal is the only word you need to she's describe. She's a unique and her. terrifying snowflake. The, the other thing that annoyed me about the coverage is that everyone says, this is really challenging the way we think about race. Yeah, that, it's like, really, that was no. condescending. <laughs> it the co- did not, the coverage did not was condescending. Yeah. yeah. 
her whole definition of I identify as black, it's a chicken and the egg argument. It's just like, well, I identify as black because I've had the black experience. But the only way, reason you've had the black experience is because you dressed up and Listen, pretended to be a black no matter how many That's black right. men you sleep with, you're not going to become black. No, but it's <laughs> what but, was pe- petrifying yeah. to watch or horrifying to watch on the most serious pan interview. She, like, she was talking about, oh, when I go through the TSA, I've got them in, up in my hair. And she's talking about, you know, the police stopped me. And it's like, given the realities, which we're going to talk about later in the show with Raquel, of 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 what, you know, women of color do face, what yeah. people of color do face from the police, from the TSA, for her to be up there, like, claiming that as her own is just, is just It's horrible. grating. Yeah. It's great. And, and I, I'm astonished by Dave Chappelle, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Whoopi Goldberg. Mm-hmm. All these people sort of came out and semi-endorsed her. Yeah, but Whoopi Goldberg was the same one that was right next to, um, who's that guy that she was dating? Ted Danson. Ted Danson yeah. when he was in blackface. Right. They thought it was funny. They thought it was a joke. So, I mean, I don't. she doesn't really have too much of race credibility with me. I could care less. And what th- I think you you have to account for, like, there's a margin of error within the black community, too. Like, there are three people out of, like, how many? Many, 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 many. Well, how right. big is the diaspora? Million, like billion, a billion, people? Many, m- a million billion is a the million, official count. A million billion yes. uh, black people out there in the diaspora. So, yeah. Let them have their their moment, but the the preponderance of opinion is this is nonsense. And I think uh, Alicia Walters at the Guardian wrote something which I um, decided to print out on a piece of paper so I could read it aloud to all y'all. Had she Rachel Doljol really understood the history of Black women in America, she would have recognized that she is perpetuating a fetish for Black women's bodies that devalues actual Black women while celebrating our parts when attached to the right white form. And so yes. much of her obsession and enactment was a costume. Yes. It was, I got to have my hair minstrel. just so, She's my yeah. skin tone, yes. I got to dress a certain way. And her claim that she could not be a mother yeah. to her black children unless she transformed into a black person that it was, was also just very misguided. And, and it was insensing. It was very insulting to other women, other yeah. mothers, white mothers like that actual are trying, transracial families. Yeah, that are trying <laughs> to be good mothers yeah. and fathers that are trying to be good fathers to their children, non-white children. That's right. To just say that you can't do it unless you become that person. Right. It's insulting. That was a very right. uh, that one only, slipped a little bit through some of the media criticism and, that I came across. I didn't see why they call her on that. And you know what I what I noticed too, like when she was doing when she was like a Matt Lauer, she was very tense and she's yeah. very, you know, like very careful and guided and purposeful with everything she was saying but then when you just see like for example on color lines the videos where they just interviewing her a college student was interviewing her she's like affecting what she her idea yeah. her very superficial idea of what black and she did that more on Melissa Harris Perry because, because she was in with a, with a fellow black yeah, yeah. With, with, well, yeah. yeah that <laughs> shit was like, what was also annoying about the coverage is everyone says oh well you know race is a social construct and maybe you can make it up and maybe you can't And but like the reality is, is that, you know, as, as is often said, race isn't real, but racism is. And she didn't just make up her race. She made up racism. Mm-hmm. She made up like these letters, these hate mail letters in her inbox yes. or mailbox oh. that they say only could have come from someone who had a key uh, saying that her parents beat her, that they were beaten with whips that would leave scars behind that were, quote, pretty similar to what was used as whips during slavery. Yeah. And so she's yeah. made up this racial oppression for herself that doesn't exist. And, and it's only it's the she, she even made cre- up artwork. She, she created she a story of someone who never has experienced the real thing because she yeah. overdid it. 
no one's a victim of nine hate crimes. Right. right. She says in her bio on the, the school that she t- t- teaches at, she said in her bio, uh, the victim of nine documented hate crimes. Like, even in the 50s, yo, like, the Klan would let up after four. Yeah, And move exactly. on to another family. Like, you yeah. don't get nine hate crimes. That's just exhausting for all parties involved. Like, and then, so and what are you talking? That's unbelievable. If you're still thinking about it, you might as well just send us an email or tweet us or call us. Leave us a you know short message about what you think about Rachel Dolezal if you still even care to do so. If you want to move on, like we're going to move on, we encourage you to do that as well. And just want to like say what's up. You're doing great. Uh, you could do that as well. So um, you can email us at showaboutrace at gmail.com. You know, Facebook at, at showaboutrace. Tweet us at showaboutrace. And um, let's move on. She's hijacked enough of our time. My Own Business is one of the 7 million that uses MailChimp to send our email newsletters and deliver high fives to our communities. Now, the people behind this company, they admire projects that spread creative empathy in the world and something they like to call creative chaos on the web. MailChimp also goes above and beyond, distributing hats for cats and small dogs. Find out more at MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Send better email. One of the things that has come up uh, again and again this week with the Rachel Dolezal discussion is commentary, criticism of her poor performance as a white ally. Jamila Lemieux in, in Ebony Magazine called it out. Talib Kweli in Rolling Stone said, you're not a friend or an ally to the movement. You're an enemy. And this has come up again and again. And we've gotten a number of emails. Stephanie in Atlanta has asked about this, not in reference to Rachel Dolezal, but just in general. What does it mean to be a white ally? Can you discuss the ways well-intentioned people are unhelpful in racial justice advocacy and resources that can be directed towards for becoming better advocates and allies? So the word ally itself, you know, there's a, a great thing that George Carlin used to do when he was faced uh, with a heckler in the audience. He would say, look, I'm not here for you. I'm here for me. In other words, I'm not actually here to make you laugh. I know you think that's why I'm here, but I'm here because of what I get out of this. From what I get on stage and talk about these ideas and think about them, and that's why I do it. And that is why I'm here in this room talking to you guys. I'm here for me. I'm not an ally. In fact, I never heard that word and, and, and until like recently. And it was like once I started like reading about it and investigating like how people framed it and how people discussed it, it was like, well, this has nothing to do with who I am or and how I engage with the subject. I engage with this subject because I'm engaged in the project of becoming a better citizen for my own purposes and my own ends. Many people have said this before, that having a racist country and having a misogynist country makes things more messed up for white men, too. It's more expensive for me to live in a neighborhood with good schools. Uh, you know, there are many, many ways in which racism makes life worse for white people, too. I don't want that for my son. I engage with the subject because it challenges me intellectually. And also, and I think this is part of the reason uh, behind the Dolezal story and behind guys like Tim Wise, you know, you people go where they get respect and esteem from their peers. And I've had a lot of success writing about this subject so far. People have responded to what I do. So I like doing it. So I'm going to do more of it. And that's why I'm here. And that's why I'm engaged with this subject. I'm not here because Baratunde and Raquel need my help. And I think it's condescending to all three of us to frame it that way, that you guys are the real principals here and you need my help, but I don't really know what I'm doing. And so I'm just should, you know, sit in the corner and be quiet. And in fact, those are the, a lot of the comments we've gotten about me on the show. Is Tanner Colby needs to, to sit in the corner and ask questions. You're right about this. But, you know, it goes back to your whole idea about self-interest. Right. It, it benefits all of us. 
for there to not, you know, for racism to end or for at least for us to be able to talk about it in, in a way that's open and just not take such an extreme position. I feel like the Tim Wises of the world are just so extreme, bleeding heart, liberal PC. And then you have the other extreme, which we, we just seen an example of in Charleston. I just feel like that's the reason why I enjoy actually doing this podcast and talking to you and even talking to you outside of this podcast is because there's no like that conversation that's loaded with guilt. Mm-hmm. And lo- you just want to know, you're just like, yo, how do, how do we make this a more livable place, more livable society for us to be able to just all, you know, not necessarily love each other, but at least respect each other. Right. I think, you know, people that are that are pushing this whole white allyship is like, love each other. Love each We don't have to, don't, I don't care if you love me or not. Just respect, you know, let's just Well, I do love me. you, Raquel. <laughs> you don't. Barrett we Tuesday have established that. I am glad that we are talking about this. I have mixed feelings about it. The term itself, ally, is new to me as well. And it was not around as I was coming up. There was a book that came out in 94 that was proposing this language and this terminology of white people who want to help. To be called allies, and now some have gone further and say followers. You know, I've actually, right. I've actually um, heard. I first heard this term in the late nineties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from an, a mentor sense. of mine who's yeah. an, right. who's, a, who's white. I think that, that some of the frustration with the word is a little too nitpicky for me. Like whether it's ally or just like better citizen mm-hmm. doesn't matter so much to me. The idea of sit down and shut up is not that useful. It's actually, it's not that. Black and brown people, in this case, me and Raquel, need your help. But, like, we live in the same community, and we need everybody pitching in to make the place better. And I'm a firm believer that just black and brown people ranting and fighting and dying under a system of white supremacy alone will not fix it. That white people need to be engaged and involved. No, we do. And and so you're, you know, coming back to self-interest, perfect sense. And we live in a market-based society. Like, we all got to try to move ahead in some way. But I would say that there's some value to some of the language of the ethics around being a white ally, et cetera. And the default, a lot of times white people come to this conversation, and it's all first person. Mm-hmm. And it presumes a level of expertise and a level of, like, self-empathy, which is like, well, I think this, and I want this, and it should be like that. And it's like, well, you don't get to jump to, like, the advanced you don't get to be a professor yet. Like you should probably go to like the 101 class first so you understand what the hell you're talking about, right? right. And, and Rachel Dolge is the most extreme case. She's like, I am the movement. Right. But there are other people yeah. who are really not quite ready to assume a leadership position. Knowing all the academic jargon, all the right words, yeah. doesn't make you automatically the anti-racist white person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Like it's, just, it's kind of condescending again. Mm-hmm. But it's true that, you know, a lot of this, like Tim Wise has this manifesto for white allies. Uh, this uh, vlogger, Francesca Ramsey, mm-hmm. has made a video, How to Be an Ally. And and these two of the things, and we'll put them in the show notes, they're kind of the worst examples of what I'm talking about. And the, the substance of what they're saying is is mostly fine. I mean, you know, most of it's common sense. It's just don't be a self-centered jerk is what most of it boils down to. But the way that it's framed is so impossibly condescending. Mm. Closest thing I can compare it to is there's a lot of literature. I just, I just became a new dad. There's a lot of literature for new dads, and if you read it, it's all couched with this tone of, hello, idiot. Dads don't know what the hell they're doing. Maybe you could help out mom a little bit. It's like, you know, I, I do take care of my kid you know, quite a lot. And even when people are idiots, and a lot of dads and white people are idiots, it doesn't help to talk to them like they're idiots. And Francesca Ramsey made this analogy in her video, which was... She, 
wrong, which she said, if in in terms of you know this movement, white people or allies, you are not Beyonce, you are not even Kelly Rowland, you are Michelle Williams, which doesn't make any sense because no one is a background singer in their own life. It is not my. Mm. Everyone is centered in their own journey, and your journey is not my journey. I am not Samwise Gamgee running behind you saying, you know, Mr. Frodo, That's Mr. Frodo. That's what I always thought of you as. I this know. changes <laughs> our relationship significantly. Right. And so <laughs> the problem with the term ally and why it leads to a corruption like Rachel Dolezal is Rachel Dolezal thinks that your movement is her movement and that she's a part of your movement. She's your ally. And so that leads to a lot of what you were complaining about. These white people show up, they want to be down. They want to be authentic. and Or they want to hang out with black people because it pisses off their parents or something. And like with me, there's none of that. Like you can take what I say at face value. because You don't want to hang out with black people? I do, but not to piss <laughs> off my parents. The point is, is that like I'm not trying to be Rachel Dolezal. Okay, and I, okay. I think that the the way that they frame the ally discussion creates people like Tim Wise and Rachel Dolezal because they over-identify with movement. And there's something, you know, we should all support gender equality 100%. We should all support racial equality 100%. But there's something creepy when the person who's in the position of power, i.e. the white male, over-identifies with the person in the marginalized position. It's just weird. That's mm. just white guilt on steroids. Right. It's white guilt on steroids. And yeah. Dolezal has it and Tim Wise has it. And I, I just kind of don't have it. I, I never. It's like the Southern accent. I never got it. So so what word would you propose? You know, I was, a, think, I was yeah. thinking about it because I was thinking about what is the relationship that the three of us have in this room? Co-hosts. We're contemporaries. Oh, another CO word. Okay. Or peers. Yeah. You wrote a book. You wrote a book. I wrote a book. We've all, you know, come to this topic through wildly different circumstances and wound up in this room together. We're all on the same plane. Mm -hmm. There's no like, oh, this is Baratunde's struggle. And, you know, because blackness is worse than brownness or the struggle of blackness is worse than the struggle of brownness. So therefore, Baratunde should be centered and Raquel should be off to the side and Tanner should really be off to the side. No, we're three people in a room talking. We're contemporaries. Allyship, which the word in itself is fine, but the way it's been used and the tone with which it's used is just completely wrong. What struck me most about what you said that resonates with me is the idea of condescending to people is not a way to win them over. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And politicians learn this lesson over and over again when they don't get elected. Um, Coaches learn it. All kinds of leaders learn that you don't talk down to people. Uh, That is not a way to garner support or certainly to maintain it in the long run. So talking to a father like he's an idiot and doesn't know which end of the baby's up is not going to help him want to be a better father in the way that will actually be effective. And talking to white people like they have absolutely no idea what they're doing and need to be sort of put in a special slow lane is hilarious and maybe occasionally (laughs) appropriate for certain white people, but as a group, uh, dangerous. You use the word peers and said we're all peers and we're contemporaries. That's true. We all have written books and we're all in this room at Slate recording this podcast together and we have an equal stake in this project. But in America, we don't have equal stakes. We're not peers in the systemic sense of you're not a peer in the American sense with us out on the street. Right. right. In this room, we're actually like a third to third. And it's, it's all good generally. Like sometimes we disagree, but it doesn't get to a point of oppression between right. any of us. But out there it does. And for a lot of people listening to the show, it does. And to the world that we're trying to affect, it does. So that humility I talked about earlier, I think you know, the idea of like, acknowledging privilege has value the idea that we have to state some of the assumptions and again it's about a, it's a respectful engagement 
that is the theme that I'm kind of going for in this term ally. And I don't think that merely peer or cohort or contemporary, mm -hmm. that doesn't quite respect the reality or the history that is real for most people in this country right now. So I'm on the pro-ally stage to some degree, but I totally agree with you, Tanner, that talking down to people, not a good way to build any kind of coalition. So I'm interested in what our co-hosts out there in the world think about what we're talking about. And if you could kill the word that's dead, the word ally, propose a new word. Propose a new word. I like to hear about it. Tweet us at Show About Race. Email us at showaboutrace at gmail.com or drop us a voice memo or hit us up on Facebook and let us know what word you would use in place. Because while I agree totally with what you're saying, Baratunde, I understand that the word itself is just like I know the, what it conjures and it conjures this lack of humility and this kind of tone and condescending tone and kind of like bleeding heart, liberal, paternalistic I, I would love kind to, of vibe. I'd love to know what people... Like we get so many questions, you know, mm -hmm. since I think probably all of us since our books have come out yeah. in some way or another have gotten pleas from people like pleading questions. How do I help? They are stuck or there's people like on our B side recently who say like they're disillusioned and depressed and they want to turn their fear into positive action. So what is that not just called? What does it look like? Like what does that work look like? So for those of you out there doing stuff or wanting to get more engaged, like how are you approaching it? And for those on the browner side of the equation, like how do you feel about white people chipping in? Right. Like how do we talk to our peers, our fellow citizens at a minimum, right. and make sure we're all rowing in the same direction? This Dolezal fascination took away kind of the spotlight from what was really from the important things that were going on. And one of the things that happened right as the story was breaking was the pool party in McKinney, Texas, that got shut down after a young woman was brutalized by the cops there, by a cop there named Dejeria Becton. And um, this really reminded me of a newly published report by the African-American Policy Forum in conjunction with Columbia University Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy called Black Girls Matter, pushed out over police and underprotected. So the report shows how zero tolerance policies not only shuts down uh, the ac uh, academic opportunities for young women of color, but kind of funnels young black women in particular and Latin Americans as well through the school to prison pipeline. Nationally, black girls are six times more likely to get suspended from school than their white counterparts in comparison to boys that are three times more likely which is alarming. I didn't even expect that number. And as far as suspension goes in Boston and New York, where this uh, report was focused, in New York City, black girls are 10 times more likely than white girls to be suspended. And in Boston, 12 times more likely. And as far as expulsion in New York, 53 times more likely. Their finding is that it's really culturally insensitive the way that young women of color are being treated in these schools. Instead of calling uh, guidance counselors and whatnot, they're calling the police. And this is the kind of conversation that we should have been focusing on and not Rachel Dolezal, even though it was a crazy accident that we couldn't turn away from. This was what was going on right before she came in and just hijacked the conversation, introduced the conversation about race to Matt Lauer. Well, it just goes to show how uh, absurd it is for her to claim that she felt black because she put some braids in her hair in Jackson, Mississippi, when you stack that up against the real violence, the real harms, and the real, you know, as you often bring up, toxic stress uh, for young women of color growing up in these situations. The report was devastating. And part of the connection is we've 
seen a lot of attention around young black boys and discipline. You got the White House My Brother's Keeper initiative, which is my brother's keeper. Uh, you've got the names that we know of Tamir Rice and Eric Garner and Trayvon Martin, et cetera, generally being male names. The, the image of that girl in a bathing suit getting treated like she was a fully armed, 200-pound threat, clear and present danger to the United States of America by this criminal masquerading as an officer of the peace is a stark reminder. I was sad to read all this stuff and be reminded of it, but I think there's a couple of things going on. And even that 50X multiple 53 times, 53 times. Like more likely to be expelled if you are a yeah, black so American no, but girl the, the, in the, New York City. Did you read the footnote to that? Was that there was actually no white girls expelled yes. in New York City. Yeah. So therefore they couldn't even draw a statistical analysis. So they made up a white girl to be expelled so that they could say 53 to 1. Yeah. So it was infinitely more. Infinitely it's Black infinitely girls more. are infinitely more likely to be expelled than white girls in New York City public and schools you, and at you, least. And yeah. A couple of things going on, I think. And when, we, when we've talked about men and boys and state violence, we've talked about a lot of stereotype images, uh, implicit bias, the idea that the boys are seen as men. You know, even when they're clearly young, but cops just see them as like grown as threatening men or beasts. They're the beast superhuman strength. They take on all these hyper masculine characteristics, which goes back to like so much in this country, slavery Mm -hmm. and the propaganda required to subjugate an entire race and get them to work for free. But women have also suffered along the same history of hypersexualization and this idea that they are in some ways as well morally super strong like they don't need or inherently more mature yeah they 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 have to they know how to take care of this yeah. they're, whether they're the wise negress yes. or whether they are strong as a man or whether they can take it um or whether they are hyper aggressive you know there's mm-hmm. these stereotypes associated with girls who that much more match the threat posed by criminal aggressive massive men and I think that explains so much of the reaction that we see in numbers like this. And, you know, when I was reading some of these stories, I was just couldn't help but think about my own experience in school. I mean, I read about um, from the Southern Poverty Law Center that there is a girl that they're representing who's a 10-year-old autistic girl from Louisiana yeah. who was just had an episode. She had an episode at school and she went up to a tree and they dragged her down and the cops were called and they like handcuffed her. And there's an article with a photo of what what happened that we're going to put on our show notes. I mean, I just can't understand how you dehumanize people in that way. Um, And this was a female cop that that had her like hand pressed on this girl's back. And then you have, you know, like there's like a laundry list of all these things that that have been going on. A kid that's that was a six year old who was... um, who was suspended because she poked a boy with an eraser. Yeah. And the boy was just, and she said the boy was bothering me and making, saying really things that were kind of inappropriate. Well, she could have mortally she injured yeah, him. But she, she could have erased him she from the earth. Exactly. You know, so. No, exactly. So it, it's just really kind of unfair that you would automatically assume that somebody was being sassy. And that happened to me. Yeah. I actually have a, a scar here from a nun who dug her nails into me when I just pushed a boy who was being, you know, like kind of inappropriate with me. And a lot of the stuff that they were talking about when they interviewed, I'm happy they took the time out to interview these girls and get their own, you know, reactions instead of just going, being clinical and going. A lot of them become disengaged at school. There are many times when I walked to school and it became so 
just the norm that the cops would be patting somebody down. One time I walked by with three of my friends were being like patted down by mm-hmm. cops and they were, their guns were drawn when I was in uh, high school. And I was just eating my French fries like nothing happened and walked right in, in front of the guns yeah. because it became such an, you know, it was normal. It was normal. Yeah. And I, you know, and I see that with the girls that I'm working on with right now in my film, that this, you know, the kids, people, their principals, they go to the, they, they ask for help. They're crying sometimes, literally. These guys are trying to, you know, coerce me into having sex or calling me names. And the women say, boys will be boys. Women, female principals, yeah. boys will be boys. Female guidance counselors, boys will be boys. You have to learn how to have, be, speak up for yourself. And these are the same things that I was going through growing up. So I don't even know how I finished school. I don't even know. But it's unfortunate to see that this stuff is still happening. Yeah. I just wish that there'd be something like my brother's keeper for women. Which shocking or not even sh- none of this is shocking. This is that's the problem. This is actually not shocking. It's just like oh, another day in America where you have sort of sanctioned terrorism by peacekeepers. The idea that we are unleashing police officers in schools, the idea that we have created a protected class of criminals to some degree. Yeah. And, and lauded them with praise and protected them from any sense of real accountability is also part of a path to a solution. And and what is curious to me, you know, politically speaking, like where we go from here, police unions are very interesting mm-hmm. uh, role to play in all this. By interesting, I mean damning yeah. because there is no gray area with them. Like it's the cops are putting their lives on the line. We got to defend what they do regardless. And part of why things like this are allowed to happen is you can't question that authority. This yeah, day. not even when it's a six-year-old being yeah, brutalized and, and, by a cop so, so there's, or a there's, 10-year-old. There's a missing level of outrage uh, from, you know, not just the left, which has some of the outrage, but from the right, which is the conservative party, which is the restrained state party, mm-hmm. which is the, like, let me handle my kids party uh, that has been backing, like, an armed government force controlling very, very intimate parts of your own lives, which is like the lives of, of your children and of our children. And yeah, if scary. we can get more alignment around that, they, that may help some. But and otherwise, it, I'm in the place where one of our readers was, which is uh, depressed, uh, afraid, and not sure where the positive action around this is yet. Well, it is depressing because while I know we can get to – I'm hopeful. I want to get to a better place. I'm not hopeful. I want to get to a better place. I have a three-year-old son who's in a pre-daycare program, and I have to almost like tell him, like, you know, don't put your hands on anybody. Yeah. Don't play too much. Don't, I'm almost, I'm, I almost feel guilty for almost emasculating him yeah. to fall into line because he's the only kid of color in that program. So it's I'm always scared that somebody's going to complain to me or say something to me because I know what how I'm going to react. I'm more scared for how I'm going to react. We have not let uh, our peer speak on this. <laughs> I just really wish. Oh yes, Tanner, there you are. <laughs> I don't really have that much to add on this other than to you know express the same general horror and revulsion at the statistics and the stories. You know, I don't have a too much personal experience yeah. with it. But yeah. were you guys at all surprised that I thought? me myself that it would be the numbers would be higher statistically well, for boys expulsion rates well and here but that, that's what that's, that's what's slightly volume question yeah the volume question. i mean no, the, what i mean is the, 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 well the way the numbers are laid out yeah the ratio of black boys to white boys is closer but that's because you also have a lot of white boys getting in trouble mm-hmm. too with white girls and black girls I'm sure very few white girls are getting in trouble because they're assumed to be white girls are assumed to be the most, yeah. you know, quiet. They do their work. They they get good grades. They're on the honors track. White boys, boys will be boys to cause trouble. We got to, you know, you know, knock them down a little bit. 
black boys are level below that. But then, you know, so the ratio of black girls to white girls is going to be wider than the ratio yeah. between black boys and white boys. And that's what those numbers show. But I think in absolute terms, I think black boys are still yeah, the most punished. That's when you look at the, the numbers of... So ratios are bad for all the brown people. Um, volume is costing black men and boys greater numbers. It's in terms of the numbers in prison and the numbers dropping out of schools. Right. So this is not a oppression Olympics sort of contest situation. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think that explains some of the media fascination as well as sexism. Right. It's right. just like yeah, there's yeah. like there's raw numbers and, patriarchy. and yeah. then there's sexism. Yeah. And the idea that you said, Tanda, that, that the white girl, the white woman is like the most protected or the mm-hmm. most uh, secure in, in virtue and innocence. And she could never do anything wrong. She's demure. And when we all these expectations are ultimately damaging. And, and you deny someone the, the agency of being fiery and having spirit. You deny someone the ability to be peaceful and just playing and not necessarily being a violent criminal or at age child, six. Or, exactly. be a, or be a child. Yeah. yeah. So, and and I mean... One of the other interesting things in the study, too, is it's both misogyny and negative stereotypes mixed with a little bit of model minority-ishness in that black women are assumed to be more resilient. They can handle it. They're fine. Um, And outside of the home, these black teenage girls are taking on expanded caretaker roles in their families because- That's one thing they have in common with Latina teens. Right. And so that's putting additional stress on them. And there's just stressors coming from every corner. So the numbers are bad. These individual stories are, are horrible. The consequence of this is multi-generational, though, too. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're denied a childhood, what does that do to your children? Well, right? you want to give them... I mean, I'm, a, I'm an, an example of that. I'm yeah. like the personification of that. I was denied a childhood, but I want to give one to my children. But I also can't be naive, like, oh, everything's all good. I'm the one that's in the playground running after my son so he doesn't play with a toy gun, a water gun, while all the white kids are, like, spraying each other with guns, and he's asking me what that is. I'm like, no, 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 See, no, 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 no. So, so, so I'm afraid something's going to happen. So I don't have the luxury of, of being naive and being like, ah. And, and that word, me. so this is great. This comes back to um, privilege, luxury. Both these words, and I really wanted to wrap this on the ally conversation, too. What is described as white privilege, which is the term we'll have to come back to because I know Tanner also has a bone. That's yes, going to take like three shows. We have, a, whole, like a, three we have shows. a mini series on words Tanner hates. And then another right. one. How about word, you? Yeah. I hate the word problematic. I know. I was just going to say we'll back white to privilege too. is problematic. But, but here, <laughs> the concept of, of it being a luxury to have your young son play with a water gun in a public park is a problem. Right? Yes. We can, that is a wrong word to describe It's not childhood. a luxury. It's... The idea of white privilege being the ability to interact with the police and not be treated like a fully armed terrorist right. is not privilege. It's citizenship. That's it's exactly. citizenship, exactly. So we need to shift all these words over a couple spaces on the spectrum mm-hmm. um, to really describe where we want to be. Right. Because white privilege, citizenship, luxury, childhood – that's much healthier, I you think, know, for our discussion. One point yes. I make on the privilege thing, because I do hate the word, but <clears throat> because, like you say, so often it's used to describe something that is, A, just citizenship, mm-hmm. or B, not really an advantage for white people, just an absence of the disadvantage right. of the black person, right? But as the word was used with Dolezal, you know, there, there are things that white people have that are simply things that everyone should be accorded. And there are things that white people have that no one else can be accorded. 
and Rachel Dolezal's ability to switch back and forth yeah. is something that no one else can special be Special powers. We call those yeah, special, special powers. powers. It's special yeah. powers. Yeah. So that actually does fall in the spectrum of that's something that somebody has that no one should have as opposed to something that everyone should have. That's a right. great And she actually yeah, on the show, that's the, one of the few direct questions that Melissa Harris-Perry asked her was, what do you respond to the people who are saying this is white privilege, that you can just switch back and forth? Mm-hmm. And she just gave another one of her word salad answers, which she was like, well, I mean, this is who I am. I could just, I could never Complexity. switch back. No, it's complexity. It's complex. It's, abs- it's that Basically, thing you said about yeah. being, like, white people have an abstract way or have a great way of making, of being a- racist, but in an abstract way. Yeah. yeah. Right? They can't deal with con- the concrete facts of it yeah. so like she's totally denied the fact that she could switch back anytime yeah. she wants she's and it's a like fraud she's, she's a such whack a fraud a, but you know what whackademic and, and, and none of the girls none of the girls we're talking about in this story or in the in this survey can have switch that back. power they don't that's have that right. power yes right. and it's that's why this, that's why this host found her incredibly irritating yeah. but I want to shed her off shake it and off I want to shake it off and I want not to think about her too much anymore so I'm Dolly Jald out how are you guys feeling? I'm transdolagel. The same. You're transdolagel. I, I actually decided that I wanted to change my station in life. Uh, I'm trans wealthy. I identify as billionaire. Oh, I, I tried actually to identify as a white male a couple of weeks ago when this whole thing came out, mm-hmm. and it just I did I was I was a, it was an utter failure. Didn't work. I'll give it you some work. tips once we're off. Yes, yes. And finally today, yo, check this out. Tanner Baratunde, what did you come across that piqued your interest that you think people should check out? I uh, shared this on on the About Race Facebook page and on my own uh, personal profile. Documentary is coming out called Three and a Half Minutes, Ten Bullets. This is a documentary about Jordan Davis, who was killed in Miami after a dispute over the loud rap music. And uh, A Life That Shouldn't Have Been Lost, a documentary that I both look forward to seeing and dread seeing. And I suspect many of our listeners and community members will have the same approach, but sometimes we need to stare into the abyss uh, and keep spreading that. So three and a half minutes, 10 bullets is a documentary coming soon to a screen near you. And Tanner? I got nothing this week. I'm literally, I'm so deep in the weeds working on this book that I haven't poked my head about at the sand uh, except to do this show. So I'm going to take a pass for this week right. and pass it back to Raquel. Okay, so I'm going to recommend a documentary that's coming out today, actually, nationwide, called Rubble Kings. And it's basically a Bronx tale about how gangs that overwhelmed that borough in the early in the early 70s um, were the generation that ended up being the progenitors of the hip-hop generation. And it's about so much more than that, actually. And and if you watch it and you really like it, I'd go on YouTube and look up 80 Blocks from Tiffany's, which is a New York City, it's a cult film documentary, and also Flying Cut Sleeves. All right, so that concludes our Yo Check This Out segment, even though you did recommend people watch uh, Fresh Dress. Yeah, so Fresh Dress is my Check This Out. It's your intro. It's like, what's up with you and Yo Check This Out. <laughs> it, it covers both. It covers both. So our producer today is AC Valdez. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers of Panoply. You can see its entire roster of captivating, compulsively listenable podcasts at iTunes.com forward slash Panoply. You can find links to the things we've discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. You can follow along with the conversation or join it yourself on Facebook or Twitter at showaboutrace. Or you can email us directly or drop us a voice memo at showaboutrace at gmail.com. 
Check back in two weeks for the B-side of today's episode to hear your thoughts on these topics. That's it for now. Thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. On behalf of Tanner Colby and Baratunde Thurston, I'm Raquel Cepeda, and we won't stop until racism is over.